Oh, well, what's going on this morning, people? Welcome once again to the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 18. We are looking at the series called The Scandalous God, and here's the reason we say Jesus is a scandalous God. One of the things I love about Jesus that he does is he disrupts stereotypes, right? Especially in the context that he was working in and preaching in and caring for people in. Everything he does disrupts the status quo and what people assumed a good Messiah should do. So he disrupts the status quo when it comes to their understanding of God. They had this certain truncated vision and then Jesus just kind of blows their mind and shows us who God really is. And he disrupts the status quo and the stereotypes when it comes to religion and those who are insiders and those who are outsiders. And ultimately what he's doing is he's disrupting the stereotype of what the kingdom was designed to be and what it would do in the world. So the people that had been waiting for a Messiah, longing for this coming chosen one to usher in this reign of peace was kind of a vision that they possess where there'd be war against the bad guys and the Messiah would slay everybody they hated and then they would have this kingdom that would be all theirs and then Jesus shows up and he says oh wait the kingdom's not like that the kingdom is made up of people who are choosing to be the greatest by opting to be the least the ones that are truly first are going to be the ones that are last and the ones that bring flourishing in the world will be the ones that let go of their lives completely and sacrifice themselves for this greater gospel good. Jesus disrupts all the thinking that these people were holding dear at that time. And last week in the Gospel of Luke, we were in chapter 17. I think I'm getting attacked by a fly right now or something, but we'll see what it does as time goes on. The devil comes in many weird ways, even a fly. So... So last week, we're at the end of Luke chapter 17, and, and Jesus is talking about his kingdom, and that it's upside down and backwards, and it's not what they anticipated, it's not what they expected, it's not going to come like they envisioned, it doesn't come with shock and awe and boom and bang, but rather he says, hey, the kingdom is in your presence because the king is in your presence. I have come into the world, and what I'm doing is testifying to the fact that God's inbreaking thing is right now in your midst. But then from that, he talks about the fact that this kingdom would be protracted, it would be elongated, it would have this progressive feel to it. So he says, because I'm here, the kingdom's here. But I will then come again. And so there's going to be this whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming. And that period of time is what we are called to to live out as kingdom citizens. That we are to be different in this world during this time in such a way that the world sees something different than itself. It sees people who do life differently than the standards of the world that we inhabit. And in the middle of that message that we looked at last week, Jesus gives us a sense of this countercultural, non stereotypical vision that we are to embrace to live out that kingdom. He says it in the middle of his message about the first and second coming. He says, Anyone who wants to seek to keep their lives, they're going to lose their life. But anybody who gives up their life for my sake, they're going to find true life. They're going to find their real life. They're going to find the meaning and purpose for life. 
See, I, I bring this up because I want to make sure that we're understanding that life in this time period, life in this age, life between the bookends of Jesus' first advent and second advent, that passage gives us the marching orders for our lives. That our lives are opposite than what the world seeks to accomplish and achieve. And so we looked at this graphic last week, and, and, and here's what you've got to understand. You are here right? You're somewhere between the advents, right? And during this in-between phase, you are to live this upside down and backwards kingdom calling. You are to live out the things that Jesus highlights as the distinct Christian life. We're to be a people who give ourselves away, who literally don't seek to preserve our lives in this life, but rather we are willing to lose our lives for his sake. And, and when he says that, I want to be clear. Don't just kind of reduce that down to, oh, I have to be willing to die for Jesus. No, actually what he's saying is you need to be willing every day to die to yourself so you might live like me. You might show me. Now, I want to be really, really clear with all of us right now, myself included. That prospect is very hard. It's very hard to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him, which is really the center point of Luke's whole message back in chapter 9. It's like, that's what we're called to do. And that whole thing is very hard. And it's hard in every context. It's hard in every culture. It's been hard every day for 2,000 years. But I think in our culture, it has a unique challenge. Because the very foundations of our society kind of set their will against this prospect. It conspires against these things that Jesus upholds because our particular culture has a strong bent toward things like individualism and prosperity and personal liberty. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but what I'm saying is those things work very hard against these principles of Jesus. Because Jesus is like, okay, I want you to do things other than the world. So it's not about you looking out for your prosperity. It's not about you looking out for your individualism. It's not about you looking out for your personal liberty. But rather, it's about you laying yourself down, giving yourself away, being the last, being the least. See, that is a challenge when the ethos of your environment says, no, 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 you have the right to protect yourself, defend yourself, and to pursue your life. Like, all those things are just opposite of Jesus. But, but I find that Jesus says a lot of things that are opposite of our world and environment. And yet he calls us to those things because what he promises is that that is how the gospel advances. That is how the kingdom is shown in the world. That is how people come to see the love of God and the grace of God by his people owning and embracing these kinds of things. And I believe he emphasizes this, this idea of giving up our lives, losing our lives to gain life. I believe he makes that the focus because those things don't take human strength or ingenuity or power. See, those things actually take faith and persistence and endurance in his grace to gain real traction in the world. That's where it's different. And that's what we're to be about, to see Jesus' unique message gain traction in the world. Because I believe what Jesus is getting at is that for a genuine kingdom-oriented influence to really make a difference in whatever culture we're in, 
The culture needs to see us inhabit those kinds of things. They need to see a long-term display of the values of Jesus embodied by Christ followers so that they go, oh, that's how I know it's real. You guys are doing this for the long haul and you're making a difference in ways that the world would never make a difference with those tools. It's just upside down and backwards. But it's hard. I never want to pretend or sugarcoat what it is Jesus invites us to. And you know what I love about Jesus? He never did either. Like, Jesus never was like, hey, man, I'm going to water this standard down so that you can all find it really easy to do. He's like, I'm just telling you, it's a hard and narrow way. It's going to have challenging prospects behind it. It's going to require this death of self and embracing faith and grace and the power of the Spirit. Like, that stuff is going to be hard. But here's the amazing thing. When I go back and look at the early Christians, right, they, they just bought into this. For whatever set of reasons, they, they heard the message of Jesus, they heard how it just seemed so crazy and backwards to do it this way, but they said, hey, we just want to do it. So they took Jesus at his word. And if we look at their circumstance and we try to give it a label, fundamentally what we would say about the early Christians is that they had almost a pacifist mindset toward a world that might be against them. Right? Between the bookends, they were going to die to themselves and live unto Christ, and that was true living. And so they kind of took up this attitude that said, all right, when it comes to our enemies, when it comes to our critics, when it comes to our foes, we're just going to have a pacifist vision of the world. And here's why they did that. The Sermon on the Mount. You go back and look at that message of Jesus. They saw that as the premier kind of theme of their lives. And so they're like, well, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so we really believe Jesus means that. So we're going to be peacemakers. And Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted. And we really believe that, that when persecution comes, we shouldn't fight it, resist it, be angry about it, be frustrated by it. But rather, Jesus said, leap for joy. Consider yourself blessed. You're going to be rewarded. So they believe that. Jesus says, man, when they set their will against you, turn the other cheek. When a soldier from the government that is against you demands you go a mile, he says, go two miles. Your enemies, when they come, love them, do good to them, pray for them, right? Bless them in your world. See, they heard all of these different ideas. Do not judge, I should be judged. Like, they heard all of this, and they believed it, and they did it. And after 300 plus years, they saw an empire go from opposing them and killing them to claiming their faith. But I want you to notice what I just said. After 300 plus years, a government that was against them claimed their faith. In other words, there were people that lived, suffered, and died and never saw the fruit of denying themselves, taking up their cross and following Jesus as far as the fruit in this world. There was a whole slew of people. Sons begot sons begot sons, and they all just struggled and suffered and faced persecution and faced hardship, imprisonment, whatever else. But they kept doing it because they believed that these kingdom values would change their world. They just really believed that if we just keep being peacemakers, if we keep taking joy in persecution, if we keep turning the other cheek, if we keep going the extra mile, if we keep loving our enemies, then finally, one day, after generations, it will change the world. See, that inspires me because they did it. It's, it's proof to me it can be done. But it's also hard. 
In fact, it's so hard, it's why often in the history of Christianity, we see Christians deciding to uh, actually just take security into their own hands, take strength in their own hands, not live out this unique value of Jesus in the kingdom in this world, but instead take up the sword as opposed to the cross, and they're going to fight for their own strength as opposed to lay their strength down in a testimony to the gospel of grace. Like, Man, look at the Middle Ages, look at the Dark Ages, look at Europe through much of the Catholic occupation. All of that was just saying, hey, we don't believe this way necessarily anymore. We're going to take strength up instead. But Jesus makes it clear this is the way of the kingdom. This is how the kingdom is shown to the world. But it's hard. I say all of that because as we go into Luke chapter 18, Jesus knows it's hard, and so he wants to tell us a story, a story about prayerful endurance in the face of injustice because he knows that when we live out this kingdom thing in the world, it's going to feel like there's a lot of injustice. And so he says, I get it, and I want you to pray to this end. And so he's going to tell us a story, a parable. And here's the thing I love about parables. Um, they're, they're like this weird teaching tool where they have aftertaste. They're like the aspartame of the Bible, all right? So you, you, you read a parable, but you shouldn't just read a parable, interpret a parable, and move on. You should read a parable and contemplate it. You should read a parable in such a way that after you've read it, you begin to allow it to read you, to study you, to reveal something in you, to show you your own dispositions, your own proclivities, your own biases, and how you are to grow in these things, or I am to grow in these things. And so when we read these parables today, we want to ponder, and we want to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to show us how we are to grow in these things. And so right now, I want to just create a moment of silence for all of us to do that very thing, to just take a moment and in the silence, say, Holy Spirit, show me, open me up, teach me, challenge me, inspire me, strengthen me, resolve me to these things, and let me hear this ancient story in a novel, fresh way from my life. So let's just take a moment of silence. You can pray where you're at, and then I'll go ahead and pray for us, and we'll get right into the passage of the day. Jesus, I have a deep favor to ask of you. And that is that you will stimulate in us an anticipation, a joy, and a conviction that your way in this world is absolutely the best way. And that your way, while it is hard, pays rich dividends. In fact, if there's anything I know, Jesus, it's that it's the hard things in life when pursued are the most rewarding. And I pray that that's how we would see these things. So we wouldn't hear your words, your message, your challenges to us as like, like heavy, hard things that we go, oh, what a drag to be a follower of Jesus. But rather we'd say, wow, he's entrusted us with the hardest things in this life. What a privilege. 
I pray that that would be our heart, that that's what would resonate, and that we would have a conviction that your way is, in fact, the best way for the world, and with prolonged focus and traction over the long haul, it changes environments, changes cities and communities and cultures, because you've proven when we lean into your kingdom, though it is so backwards in the ways of the world, when we lean into it and do it, it actually brings transformation. It's when we're like the world that we lose real influential power. And so help us to embrace this and to embrace you and to follow your values in the spirit that you've given. So guide us and show us Jesus in your name. Amen. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 18 of Luke. It says, One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. So Luke does us a favor and tells us right off the fat right off the bat here here is the occasion here is the theme it's coming right off the heels of what jesus has just talked about right so the context was he says hey i've come the kingdom's begun but i'm coming again and that's when the kingdom fully consummates between that time you live your life by giving your life away that's the theme that we have so far right and so inside of this this idea of like live different, give yourself away, live different, focus on kingdom values, live different in such a way that you are showing you a faith in God's provision more than faith in your might. All of that, that, that difference living kind of stuff, man, it, it's going to be tough. Because when we do that, when we do the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look soft we're going to look kind of naive, idealistic. People might look at us and say, you're just a bunch of silly saps. This whole idea of turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, whatever. Peacemakers and joyfully persecuted. Well, Jesus knows it's going to feel that way, so he tells us in the midst of that to pray and never give up. You're going to need to pray to sit in that saddle in that way. And so from that, he tells the story where he encourages all of us to be just like a powerless widow. Can I tell you this is what bugs me about Jesus every time? What bugs me about Jesus is he loves to go to illustrations that are, again, the opposite of the way the world works. So remember earlier when he went to his guys and he says, all right, I'm sending you out in the world. You're going to be my ambassadors. You're going to preach my message. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. This is not good coaching. Right? Most coaches are like, you guys are warriors. You're animals. You're going to take it. You're the wolves. You're the hunters. You're the alphas. Go. Right? And she's like, no, you're dumb sheep. Go. You know? Like, he loves to just go, man, we're doing it so backwards, people. So backwards. So now he solicits another image of backwardsness. I'm going to send you out. I want you to be like, I want you to think like, I want you to pray like a powerless old lady that doesn't have anybody to care for her. That's how I want you to be. That's so what he tells the story. He says, there was a judge in a certain city, right? And he said, this judge neither feared God nor cared about people. And a widow of that city came and repeatedly said, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. But the judge ignored her for a while and then finally said to himself, I don't fear God and I don't care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with all of her constant, incessant requests. Now, I, I love the fact that Jesus tells the story because there is no greater gulf socially than between a widow and a judge. This woman has no leverage, no advocates, no rights, 
no authority. She has no strength or clout. In her society, in this patriarchal model, there is no one looking out for her. The law doesn't even care about her. And so Jesus is like, there's your hero. Remember your hero is the one that's the weakest in the story. But then there's the judge, right? And the judge is high on the scale. He has all the leverage, makes all the rules, dispenses justice as he sees fit, which is troubling in the story because here the judge says, I don't fear God, I don't like people. I don't know about you, but I go, that's troubling and oddly refreshing that the guy is self-aware, you know? Like he just knows, like, yeah, God, dumb, people, dumber. And this guy's supposed to dispense justice. Well, at first he hears this woman's plea, and he doesn't give a rip. He doesn't care. He's not weighing out whether she's actually been violated, mistreated, abused, has an enemy. It's just not important to him. God's no big deal. She's no big deal. He's got better things to do, so he's not worrying about her justice needs whatsoever. That is, until she pesters him so much, he's sick and tired of hearing about it. It's like this woman's trolling him day and night on Twitter, you know? Give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And he's sick and tired of it, right? So because she is relentless, she's made him restless, and so in his selfishness, he decides to dispense justice. Right? So it's a weird thing because it's not like he goes, oh, I see your plight. I feel your pain. Yes, you've been wronged. Here's justice. He's just like, shut up. Go away. Here's your justice. Right? It's a weird story. But then Jesus pivots into the moral of the story. It says, then the Lord said, learn the lesson of the unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He says, I tell you, he will grant them justice quickly. And we've highlighted quickly there because we're going to get into that in a minute. Now, here's what I want you to understand about this particular story. Um, it doesn't encompass all things. Right? That, that's the temptation. So we go, oh, so if I just keep pounding on the doors of heaven for every prayer request I have, day and night, over and over and over, God will hear my prayer and he will grant me what I request. Well, that's not what this story is being told for. That's not the reason that Jesus is giving this story. His point goes back to the context. The context is, hey, my kingdom started I've come, the king's here, kingdom's begun, kingdom will continue till I come again. And I want you to live in a way that you are giving away your life, that you are sacrificing your life every day for my cause. And in that, you will face injustice. In that, you will be mistreated. In that, you will be frustrated by the actions of people who are gonna use and abuse the fact that you are living these kingdom values. In that context, what he's saying is, you want to pray, right? Because what was the woman coming to advocate for? She wanted justice because she was being mistreated. And, and so that's what Jesus is trying to get at here, right? If anything, it goes back again to the idea of when you're living the Sermon on the Mount, it's so silly in this world to do. It's so ridiculous. It's so foolish to live the Sermon on the Mount that, that people will totally abuse you for that. 
They'll take advantage of your niceness. They'll take advantage of your forgiving spirit. They'll take advantage of the fact that you will turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, hold to your yes is yes and no is no, all that stuff that Jesus talks about. So, so Jesus knows like we're gonna get throttled at times for that. But in the midst of that, what we have to remember is that when we live those things out, what we're displaying to the world is a love of God and a love of people that is so deep we're willing to be mistreated, seen as silly, and seen as saps for this greater kingdom good. And so when you're feeling that, you're going to feel injustice. And yet injustice shows love. I mean, even think about what Jesus did. Did Jesus endure incredible injustice at the hands of his own creation? Why did he do that? To prove love. Right? That, that's why he did it. And, and so he stays in the pocket, he takes the injustice, and then what's it say in the Bible? It says he trusted God who judges justly. So Jesus didn't lash out, freak out, beat somebody up. He didn't do any of that. Didn't get a lawyer, didn't do it. He just he took it. He showed love in the midst of it, right? And so the application of this prayer is this exact same spirit that Jesus is driving at here. We're going to be tempted to quit or to get mad, to lash out at our world, to fight fire with fire, to take things into our own hands when we feel like we're being mistreated for our faith or our faith is being opposed or our faith is being persecuted or our faith is being mocked. We're going to want to be just like them in our retaliation. But Jesus says, instead of doing that, you want to pray. Pray like this widow, going to the Father. Father, give me justice. Don't try to get justice for yourself, but Father, give me justice. And we pray this, not in some like, Lord, I don't want to you know, be too interruptive right now, but would you do me a favor? No, what's he saying? Cry out to God. Cry out to God, Right? before you lash out at the world. Now, I can promise you it is easier to give up, to seek one's own justice, and to do our own thing far more than to keep this prayer regiment going. It's much easier to do it on our own, right? But here's the thing. It won't pay off on the end if we do it that way, right? If we just say, you know what? Nope. We're going to have to fight for our faith now in earthly, worldly ways, just like the world fights. It won't pay off in the long run. It can pay off on the short run. It can. I mean, you go through the history of the Catholic Church throughout Europe, man, they would use the sword a lot to get their way. But it didn't pay off in the long run. The long run is the Jesus way. So the first thing I look at there is like, man, that's, that's what we do. We pray when we're tempted to want to retaliate or seek our own way or our own strength. The second thing I see in this to me is that, is that while prayer is a blessing, and I'm just being transparent here. While prayer is a blessing, it's also often a battle or a burden. Right? If you're going to cry out to God in the face of injustice, sometimes it becomes a battle and a burden because you keep crying out and you feel like you're not hearing from God. Or you keep crying out and God doesn't come in and rescue you in the timeline that you see fit for your own life, right? So you're saying, God, deliver. God, rescue. God, alleviate the problem. And you keep praying that week after week, month after month, year after year, and you still don't hear a response where finally that comes. You're like, God, I'm praying for a good gift. God, I'm praying for a noble thing. God, I'm praying that your gospel would win and I would be faithful to that. But it seems like we're just getting throttled all the 
the time and marginalized all the time and blown off and dusted under the rug. God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to do something? It can be really frustrating to pray and pray and pray. And after a while, you feel like you're just praying into the darkness and nothing but silence emerges. When that's the case, like I said, it can be a battle. It can be a burden. You go from the optimistic, God, yes, be my vindication, be my justice, to after a while you start wondering, do you really care? So your prayer of enthusiasm becomes this prayer of accusation. And then accusation can turn to anger. Clearly, you don't care, God, because I've been praying this for years and nothing. And then where anger can go is indifference. See, indifference is, you know what? I keep asking, you keep not answering, I keep bugging, you keep not coming through on this, so after a while, you know what? Apparently it doesn't matter to you, so it doesn't matter to me, God. I keep asking, you do nothing, I'll just drop it, because I seem to care more than you. Because I'm begging, and you're just chilling someplace. You ever felt like that, been in that space? I have. I totally have. I've gone from God, you can, to God, why aren't you, to God, I guess you don't really give a rip, to then I don't either. I've done that. Jesus knows we're going to be tempted to do that. No question. And so he's trying to encourage us. Stay in the pocket. Stay in the saddle. Ride upright, even when it feels like God isn't doing this, right? In fact, in this passage, I think there's four little things that come up here. First, he's like, when it feels that way, you have to still be persistent. Be persistent, right? Even over the long periods of time where there feels like there's silence, be persistent. The second thing he says here is be positive. Be positive that one day God will grant justice. This is the one thing I want to note here and why I underlined that idea of, um, you know, that God will do it quickly, Right? In the original Greek language that Luke is writing his, his particular gospel, that word quickly is translated different ways depending on the context. And I really feel like the English translators kind of just did us a disservice here. Because the word quickly can also mean surely or certainly. And, and if anybody has had this experience like me you know when you pray for long periods of time for God's justice in an area and you know you're praying a good clearly biblical thing and God's not answering that in any timely fashion you go well this ain't quickly then the reminder here is it may not be in in a speed way what you want but it will it will certainly occur at some point God will in fact vindicate us in the end that means the third thing here be patient Right? Be patient. In the end, he will do this. He may not do that in the next five years, ten years, or over the course of our lives. Again, I go back to the, that 300 plus years of the early church where people lived and died waiting to see justice, and they didn't see it in their lives, but eventually one day they all will see it. Right? So be patient. But then part of this is modeling what the kingdom is all about by this prolonged petition against the odds. Right? You're like, man, I just know like, it doesn't seem it's going my way, our way, the Christian way, whatever else, but I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep living the values of the kingdom. I'm going to keep doing the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to believe God is faithful to that cause. You know what that takes? It takes pretty radical faith. 
right? To keep praying this way and to keep living like Jesus against the odds. Which is why I think Jesus adds this provocative last line in verse 8. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? So, so put the pieces together, right? He's spoken about the first coming. He's spoken about the second coming. He's spoken about how we live during those bookends. He's spoken about the fact that, you know what, it's going to feel like you have injustice coming at you and you need to be like a poor, persistent widow that keeps asking God to deliver. But to do that takes tremendous faith. And so when I come back, will I find people that have the faith to keep doing that? Or will they give up, throw in the towel, take things into their own hands, say it's about my safety, my security, more than it's about his faith, his sacrifice, his endurance, Right? Are we going to pray it up? Are we going to act out? Like, that's what he's probing here. So he just, he's kind of out loud, just kind of pondering, right? Here's what I want you guys to do, but boy, when I come back, will I see it in action? See, what I think is interesting about Jesus when you read through the Gospels is he promotes faith, but it's not simply a faith of words and creeds. It's a faith of actions and humility and deeds, and so he says, hey, I want you to keep living the kingdom, keep representing me well, and keep praying day and night, crying out to God because one day he will vindicate. Now again, like I keep saying, this isn't easy. But as the Mandalorian says, this is the way. Right? This is the way. And it's a way that requires a sense of the second story that Jesus immediately tells Verse 9, then Jesus told the story of someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and they scorned everyone else. Now, what I love about this, just at the intro of it, is it's brilliant because it incorporates pretty much everybody in the human race, right? If we're just honest, we're all really awesome at self-righteousness and judgment. We are. I mean, think about it. If you're somebody who's on the political left, for example, you tend to judge the right. They're backwards, they're regressive, they're nationalistic. If you're on the right, you judge the left. They're reckless, they're unpatriotic, they're socialists. If you're somebody like me who's more of a moderate, I judge both sides. That's how self-righteous I am, <laughs> right? I'm a moderate. I'm not like you two lunatics on those sides. Right? We're all awesome at this. I'm smarter, I'm more clever, I'm more aware. Are more focused. Those guys, they're more questionable, they're deceitful, they're ignorant, or whatever else. Just the human condition tends to say, you know what, if I divided the race in half, I'm on the right side of it. That's us. That's all of us. That's me. I'm super good at it. We did a thing like a couple of years ago as a staff, and it was like this assessment of true values and characteristics of a team. And the only thing the entire team shared is judgmental. And I'm like, no, we err on the side of grace in very judgmental ways, apparently. So it's just in us. But here's the thing about that, right? From a worldly perspective or even a religious perspective, kind of judgment and self-righteousness kind of comes with the territory. But from a kingdom Jesus-oriented perspective, there is nothing that more undermines the gospel than self-righteousness and judgment. Nothing does. Nothing does. And I want to be clear about that. I can't think of a thing that more undermines it, right? Because again, think about Jesus. Jesus comes to make peace between us and God. 
And he comes to make peace between us and God in such a way that he is willing to be mistreated, used, abused, maligned, and eventually slaughtered at the hands of sinners to save them from their sins. That is the ultimate in the sense of I am sacrificial, selfless, and humble for a greater good, even if I'm at the hands of those who are against me and I'm trying to rescue. And so if we fail, if we fail to incarnate that same heart and spirit, then we're failing to show the world how rich God's grace is. We're forgetting what we've come from. We're forgetting actually who we technically still are in many ways. Flawed, failed, self-righteous, judgmental human beings. We're forgetting that it's only by grace that we stand. And if we forget that, then that's bad. It's bad for others, it's bad for us, and it's bad for the gospel. So Jesus is kind of telling the story to remind us, hey, stay humble. Remember your position before God and stay humble. And that's where you'll be effective. So all of this links together. You lose your life to gain it. You pray in the face of injustice and you stay humble in your position before the world. Don't start judging the world that's against you. Don't start judging the world that might want to judge you or come after you. No, you got to keep the right posture to be a kingdom person. And so that's why he's telling the story. So he says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters and sinners and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. Rather, I I fast twice a week and I give one-tenth of my income. But then the tax collector stood at a distance, daring not even to lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed, and instead he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Again, Jesus is telling a story of opposites, right? We get that. And as New Testament Christians that go to church and learn a lot of things, we understand how to be predisposed to the story. We already know that the Pharisee's probably the bad guy, the tax collector's probably the good guy, but that's because we have a bias. The bias is we've been told those stories so often, we have the bias. But if we were to bring him to our modern context and we didn't have that bias, guess what? The Pharisee, that's the dude we like. Right? The Pharisee, that's the one we're like, I want my daughter to marry a Pharisee. They're quality people. They work hard. They're good for the community. They're upstanding citizens. We would dig the Pharisee. If you had a new neighbor moving in and it was the choice between a Pharisee or a tax collector, you're like, I want the Pharisee, right? You want the Pharisee to coach your kid's soccer team. You want the Pharisee to be your kid's teacher. You want a Pharisee to hold your wallet. You're not letting a tax collector hold your wallet, right? right? The Pharisee, in essence, is good people. And it's understandable. This list that he gives is not only a good list, it's a true list. I mean, come on, it's not that hard. He doesn't cheat. He's not a sinner. He's not an adulterer. Probably true. And he goes over the top. The, the religion of the Israelites only had one day a year where they had to fast. This guy fasts twice a week. This guy gives 10% of, literally it says in Greek, all of his income. So if he sells something on eBay for four bucks, he still gives 10% of the four bucks. Like this guy is completely solid, complete, committed. He is good people. And then he looks at the tax collector. And he says, that tax collector He's unpatriotic. And guess what? He was. He was a traitor against his own people. He was unpatriotic. He extorted people, so he was ripping them off. 
ripping them off to give money to their enemies and their oppressors, right? So he was funding the terrorists, in essence, who were opposing God's people. And then in that, he was getting a little bit of kickback on the side, so it was his own gain. So when the Pharisee says, thank God, I'm not like him, and he gives that list, he's right. He's right about the list. He's right that he's not like him. He's moral, he's respectable, he's patriotic, he's devoted, he's serious about the Bible, about church, about his community. All those things are true. But he's also critical and judgmental and self-righteous. His problem is that he looks down at a segment of society and is critical of them, judgmental of them. And so in his self-justification, we see a sense of self-incrimination in the process. That's his space. Meanwhile, you have the tax collector. See, the Pharisee, it says, stands alone because what it is is he doesn't want to be defiled by the lesser thans because there was all these Old Testament laws that if you touch somebody that was a lesser than, that you would be defiled. So he stands by himself so he doesn't get defiled by the lesser thans. But this tax collector, he's defiled as a lesser than. He knows who he is. That's why he's by himself in a different way. He stands at a distance. And while the Pharisee is self-congratulatory, this tax collector is self-reflective. And he doesn't just say he's a sinner, but in the original Greek language, he says, I am the sinner. Right? It's just so laden with ownership. So much so that he dare not even lift his eyes to heaven. Which this is an interesting insight. I don't know if you realize this, but we pray exactly opposite of the Jewish people in the Old Testament period. Exactly the opposite. So they prayed like this, eyes open, head up, arms out. What do we do? Hands down, eyes closed, head bowed. We're extremely the opposite. But the reason they did it this way is because their attitude was, hey, if I'm coming to God and I'm praying, I can look at God in the face. I can come and throw myself before him and I can entreat him and pour myself out to him. But this poor tax collector knows he's guilty, knows he's got a mess of a life. And so he can't look God in the face. He just has his eyes down and he's beating his chest over and over. It's this progressive, continual gesture of just, I'm not worthy. I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. But in that, God, I need you to be merciful. Oh, God, be merciful to me. And again, I know there's a lot of Greekishness today, but, but this word is so unique. It doesn't mean forgive me. The word he uses here, we translate as merciful, doesn't mean forgive me. It means atone me. Atone me. There's such an ownership of his sin that he's like, God, I just want you to make at-one-ment between myself and you. That's what atonement means, at-one-ment. God, bring peace to my soul. Bring union between you and I. I am such a mess. I have nothing to offer. So he just throws himself on the grace, the mercy, and love of God. And so you have two very different approaches to viewing self and God and others. You have one elevating their morality, their devotion, and in that, their self-promotion. And then you have another one elevating humility and transparency and self-reflection. And of this, Jesus says, I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, return home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled. But those who humble themselves, they will be exalted by God. I was thinking about this, and I thought, man, on my best, most moral, most committed days... I have nothing in which to boast. 
on those days where I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm doing everything right, right? As soon as I look at somebody else and I go, oh, but them, thank God I'm not like them. Or, oh, those people, or oh, those people, or oh, those people, whatever it is, just proves how desperately I'm in need of God's grace. It's the humble that God exalts. It's the faith-filled that God vindicates. It's the prayerfully determined that God sustains. Right now, I want us all to just simply do the opposite of the Jewish people and bow our heads and close our eyes. But I want to take a moment of inventory because I, I say this again just personally. As I was going through this this week and the level of inventory I had to address in my own life and my own judgment and frustration, um, my own sense of self-righteousness in the world, um, and I just realized how utterly detrimental it is to the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom. Like, just utterly detrimental. As soon as I'm looking at some group and I go, they frustrate me, they bug me, I, I kind of stand against them, I think they're goofy, dumb, wrong, whatever. I'm just a Pharisee. I think the toxin that is kind of in our bones sometimes is just that, that we, we forget that Jesus made himself the servant of every human being ever. He came under every human being, it says in Philippians, the servant of all. And then he calls us to do the same. And then we tend to look around and judge. And we're the servant of some, the some that are worthy. Or maybe the some that we see are needy and broken, but, but the servant of all is a disposition, an attitude that Jesus wants us to inhabit. And so I thought today there would be two arms of prayer. One is for those of us who follow Jesus, claim the way of the kingdom, want to be what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, that, that we go, man, I, I gotta do this differently. I'm, I am frustrated, a segment of my culture. I am put out by certain people, certain parties, certain platforms, certain ideas, forgetting that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's demonic, it's satanic, it's other things, but it's not people. People are the ones we are to give away the gospel to in humility and love and care. And so maybe today is a day of repentance for some of us where you go, yep, I'm laden with frustrations. I'm laden with opposition. I'm laden with people that I'm put out by. I'm just I'm trapped in a little Pharisee world. Maybe it's just time of, Father, forgive me. Right? Help me to be different. Help me to be like your son, Jesus. Maybe for others of us, we go, man, I'm hearing this message of Jesus and I'm the tax collector. I'm beating my chest. Father, have mercy. Right? Well, this is your moment to say, Father, forgive me. Maybe you don't even know Jesus. You're not walking with Jesus. You, you, you know, you've been estranged from this idea of being rescued by the cross and grace of Christ. This is your moment to say, Jesus, rescue me, save me. I, I admit I've done my own thing, gone my own way, rebelled against God, rebelled against you. I want to be like you, Jesus, and make the world a better place by being like you in the world. Maybe that's your prayer today. Whatever your prayer, Jesus, rescue me, or Jesus, forgive me for maybe not representing you like you want me to. Man, he hears us and he forgives us. That's the beauty of this whole thing. That's why he went back to its grace. It's his mercy. It's not our goodness. It's not our morality that gets us through this thing. It's our dependency where we lose our lives and gain our lives through him. Jesus, help us. Help us all. Help me. 
to be more like you and to trust your way actually works because we are utterly tempted every day to believe it's the ways of the world that get stuff done. Your ways don't get things done. The Sermon on the Mount will not change the world. We are told that repeatedly. It's a lie of the enemy. It's told in all sorts of ways. No, you need strength, you need control, you need power, you need prestige to win. No, we need to be like you. Help us to have the long game vision that you have. We thank you, Jesus. We love you and we need you in your name. Amen.